0: About a year ago, we were in the book of Numbers, and now we're back again. Um, We have been slowly going through, like in six years, the Hebrew Scriptures, um, and then dropping all these other books and um, topics in, and we'll continue to do that. So right now, today, we're going to start into Numbers chapter 9, 10, and 11. So for those of you who may have never read the book of Numbers, it starts out... Uh, with a lot of numbers, which is why it's called that. Um, In the Hebrew, it is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And that is kind of what this book is about. This title of this top is Cloudy with a Chance of Fire. All right. So let me give you a quick little wilderness recap of what's been happening so far. The Israelites... Um, had a covenant with God through Abraham and Abraham's descendants. There was famine in the land. And after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob has, they keep going down to Egypt anytime there's famine because there's a bread basket in Egypt and that the Nile is constantly watering that area and making it possible where there's no other rain, you could still sort of eke out a a substantive lifestyle right on the edges of the Nile. So as a result, then under Joseph and Joseph's descendants, the Israelites are down into Egypt and they've been there for 400 years. This is the book of Exodus and God's going to remember them and bring them on out. Uh, While they're there, they are under terrible slavery, right? And they start to cry out to God. Okay, this becomes the central cry, right? Deliver us. Get us out of this place. We are under oppression. We are under slavery and we need rescue and redemption. God remembers them. He pulls them out with a mighty hand with signs and wonders. There's 10 chances for Egypt to repent. The Egyptians do not repent. Pharaoh does not repent. And after those 10 chances, those 10 plagues, which are pretty phenomenal and incredible, Israel witnesses all of this. God again, sort of gives Israel new life, births them out from through Egypt, through the water. He sends a pillar of fire to protect them and to guide them. God fights for them. And then they march for about 40, 50 days and they arrive at Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, they're given this incredible revelation from God. God comes down in a cloud. There's fire. The Israelites are freaked out. They're like, Moses, you go, not us. We don't want to go. It's a little bit too scary. God calls Moses up. He actually has to go up and down and up and down, up and down. He's like, oh, by the way, go get Aaron. If you've climbed Mount Sinai, then you're like, that's ridiculous. God should have just made a list and had all the stuff at the first time. But Moses has to climb several different times. And while he's up there, you know, he's asking for a glimpse of God and God's presence. And God's hand kind of smushes him into the crevice of the rock. And this is what Moses experiences. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and truth, maintaining love to thousands, and forges wickedness and rebellion and sin on the generations to come, right? So, this beautiful, incredible, like the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious God. Moses is up there, he has this revelation, and as he's coming back down with the Ten Commandments, these ten words of God, he stumbles upon revelry in the camp. It's not revelry, it's terrible, right? Like it's this immediate sin with the golden calf. That's kind of what has brought us up to this point. Now, Israel has then um, had 3,000 lost. God renews the covenant, and he's given them all sorts of commands, right? Not just the 10 commandments that we like to talk about, but how to pack up the tabernacle, how to close down the tabernacle, how to carry the tabernacle, how to deal with the ark, what kind of—all of the stuff that you skipped over quickly when you were reading this at some point when you decided to tackle the Bible through the year program, right? Um, And so then we had— a description about offerings and all of that kind of stuff. And now we're in Numbers. Now, Numbers chapter 9, verse 15. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant of law, was set up, the cloud covered it. And from evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. And that's how it continued to be. The cloud covered it. And at night, it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted up from above the tent, the Israelites sent out, set out wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. And at the Lord's command, the Israelites set out and at his command, they encamped. And as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When it's like a big God GPS, right? Where you're supposed to go all the time. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, then the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would camp. And then at his command, they would set out. And sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning. Can you imagine like tearing down camp and putting it all back up and going again? And when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out whether the cloud stayed over it, all of that. At the Lord's command, they encamped. At the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with the command through Moses. This picture of God with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire and God coming in cloud and fire is one that we should be quite familiar with. It will happen over and over and over again in the Bible. We'll have places, not just in the tabernacle and the camping in the wilderness or the being sent out in the wilderness. We also have these moments where we'll see like sort of uh, God's footsteps following with the Israelites. In fact, when we go into the wilderness, I like to ask the question, did the Israelites wander or did they follow? Because they're following. It says that in all of the texts they're following. Now there's a bit of some wandering because we know where they're supposed to end up. But they're following that whole time, and God's presence in that fire and in that cloud is something they'd be aware of. There's some interesting discrepancy in the text. Is it like two pillars at the same time? Is it the rabbis often likened it to God's footsteps walking with Israel in, in the wilderness? Or was it a little bit like something you can only see the fiery part when the sun goes down at night? So it's fire that's constantly on the inside, but it's cloudy by day and then bright at night. And in all of those things, whether it's fire or a cloud, those are pictures of some sort of provision and divine revelation in the Bible. When we talk about those different things, we can reach all the way back to Abraham with the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. We can talk about Moses and, and the and the fiery bush. We can, again, talk about Sinai. We would talk about Shavuot or Pentecost, wouldn't we, for Acts chapter 2 with fire and sort of cloud. When Solomon dedicates the temple, it appears. When Jesus is transfigured, there's something fiery about that, right? When Ezekiel's having his vision. When Elijah is calling down fire with the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel, but then also looks out and sees the cloud coming all of those connotations of fire and cloud have additional connotations. When you think of a cloudy sky, what do you think of? Rain. Dark cloud, it says that when Solomon is praying for God at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, like it's a dark cloud. A dark cloud is rain. Now, is rain a blessing? Sure. Can it also cause trouble? Yeah there's some power in that, right? The same with fire. I have a friend who says um, that fire, you know, it, it heats your home and it can cook your food. But if it leaves the fireplace, it can burn your house down. He likens that also to alcohol. <laughs> it's like in its place, it can keep you warm and bless your family, but it comes out of its place. It can burn your house down. And this power, this revelation of God in divine, incredible cloud and precipitation and power, but not too much. And how does that, something you can't quite control, but you need. And fire and warmth and light at night, but something that can also tear you apart. These are pictures that persist throughout our text. Now, oftentimes when we look and think about what kind of experiences we want to have with God, I love that picture of the cloud, right? How many times have you and I been seated someplace out in God's beautiful creation and we see an incredible sunset or an incredible sunrise or some beautiful clouds with like the angel light that comes through and we're like, oh, this is powerful and it's amazing. And it's sort of this thin place. And in those places, and as we pray for those experiences with God, we're praying for those connections with the Lord, right? We want to have those moments, those points of intimacy. We want to have that incredible experience where wouldn't it have been amazing to sit outside of the tabernacle in our camps and look towards that tabernacle and see the presence of God. Some sort of physical manifestation that assured us that God was with us, that we could follow, that we could see. And we pray for that all the time. We pray for those thin places where we can have that amazing experience. And regularly when I hear Christians talk about this, we talk about how we want the glory of the Lord to fill God's house. We want that palpable presence presence of the cloud, right? And people will talk about all of those sort of manifestations. But regularly, we don't talk about the fire in exactly the same way. And I think it's because we know innately it burns, that there's something in that that can be quite powerful. Um, So let's contend with that a little bit. As we go through the wilderness, this beautiful wilderness, which is not a bad place as the prophets consider it, Jeremiah likens it to a honeymoon, right? Uh, he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, Israel. How, as a bride, you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. This is where you honeymoon with God, this is where you can listen to God in all of those places. In that intimate place, in that wilderness place, where we can have those thin moments, we also have then this happen in Numbers 11. <clears throat> The people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused, and fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them from the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, the fire died down, so that place was called Tibera, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. When we look at our experiences with God, I find at least in my own life that I deeply want that amazing thin place glory of God experience, but I don't really know what to do with this fiery thing that happens just three days later. And if you'll read in your Bible from numbers nine and 10 and then to 11, they've only marched for three days and they've started to grumble. Now, for those of you who've walked with us in Mount Sinai, you're like, that's nothing. I grumbled after 20 minutes. I completely understand. But we've heard probably a lot of church things like they grumbled after the Lord so quickly. But God is angry at this grumbling. Very quick. In fact, it's been such a short march. And the rabbis actually have this midrash where they talk about how that all of Israel was at Mount Sinai. And God was there. And yeah, God's going to get up and tell them to move. But they like, sort of packed up so quickly and marched away from Mount Sinai as quickly as possible with as much distance between them, because they didn't want any more laws. (laughs) They're like, that was good. We're all done now. Thank you very much. We just need to move on and get to the next spot. And within three days, they're grumbling and complaining against the Lord. And then God sends fire, and they're destroyed. Not all of them, but some. What do you do with that? What do you do with passages in your Bible that are wrath of God passages? I'm just curious, because sometimes people ask me these questions as a pastor, and I'd like some good answers. What's that? Old Testament God, God, right? That's easy, right? We can just like, but then it kind of falls apart because Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else. Um, So that's, that's a bummer, right? I wish, I wish we could do that, right? It just doesn't work. So I think some of the things that I have heard before, it's like, it's a metaphor. God didn't really send fire and just kill a bunch of people outside the camp. Has anybody heard like it's how they explained or they, it's, it's this metaphor. Like they felt convicted. It was the fire of God's conviction, right? It wasn't actual fire. But the problem with that is that the Bible never perceives it as metaphor. Psalm 78 talks about this specific incident. Psalm 78 goes through of like, you followed me, you disobeyed me, you complained against me and I sent fire out. And it's also like, do, does anyone hear when we get to like God provided for them in the wilderness? He hit the rock and water came out and manna was provided and all of that. We don't say that's a metaphor. But somehow we get to this wrath of God bit and we're like a bit uncomfortable with, you know, just fire being shot out from heaven and consuming a whole bunch of people. We even know, for example, that still today, Sinai Bedouin will capture quail that come on in. Do you remember the end of this story? In Numbers 11 is where they're going to ask for meat, like fish, kind of like the meat they had back in Egypt. And Egypt was really good, Now, like, this is no good. And we're already grumbling and complaining. God sends so much quail that it's stuck in their teeth and spitting out, and they're sick of it. Well, we have currently ethnographic evidence of this type of practice. We know quail comes through. It's not a metaphor. The other things that are around this story, we can sort of set into their histor- historical place. So what do you do when you come to places in the Bible, and this is by far not the only place, where God's wrath pushes out and destroys people? How do you explain that? Because I like to talk about the love verses. And I have not apologized. I, like, put on the love glasses all day long. But we have to contend with these other passages in our Bible. So maybe we'll say, well, this passage in the Bible is just trying to provide an explanation for a natural disaster, to ascribe some meaning to it, right? Right? there was a lightning storm. It was very sad. Um, They knew that people had been grumbling. So then the Israelites tell the story of it was because people were grumbling, but God didn't really do it. And I like that too. I get it. I don't want to give God the responsibility of shooting out lightning, right? And, and killing a whole bunch of people. I don't like that wrathful response, but I don't feel like I can then say that God is in charge of everything right? So I'm stuck there. Also, if God is always just targeting only like the bad people or not targeting the bad people, or if it's just sort of like this explanation, I have a problem because God's really bad at it. Then I saw this mug, right? Dear karma, I have a list of people you've missed. Like if God is the kind of God that shoots lightning out and just takes people out all of the time, right? Then, then this isn't really working. Can you, everybody like, like we'll just do easy Hitler, right? Like get Hitler. That seems worse than the grumbling. So we have this problem with that portion too. It's not easily found. Now I have your exact slide Kwame. That's the old Testament, but now we have Jesus, right? But that's not quite easily sorted through. If you read your new Testament, Jesus talks about hell more than anybody else. People are burning, right? Revelation. That's going to be tough. And when you get to even Acts chapter, was it right when the beginning of the church is starting out with, um, why am I? Uh, I'm remembering Old Testament names in my head. Ananias yes, Ananias and Sapphira, right? They drop dead because they lie. Now, if that were still the case, all of us would be dead, right? Everybody here has lied in church at some point. No, you look great, right? Like that immediately, right? We're just like immediate dropping dead like. How do we contend with all of this stuff? And if we just want to say, well, that's the Old Testament God and not the New Testament God, first of all, that's a problem. Because now you're a polytheist. Or is not God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Or is he so capricious in his character that he was... Mean to them for our sake, that we might have a good story to tell someday about why we really need Jesus and then he'll be nice to us. But but Paul says, be careful, because you are the unnatural branch that's been grafted in. Like if you want to go with like God just had a bad day, I have a half bad day, and then right, and then move to, but now Jesus. Well, we have trouble with that, particularly when we know that Jesus talks very specifically about it and in the book of Revelation that there's going to be a judgment day. And Jesus seems deeply concerned with how we live. You are my friends if you do what I command. Immediately after all of this Torah, this law, this instruction that the Israelites are given and they're starting to march out within just three days, people are dying because they've grumbled against the Lord. And this is going to be the entrance point to the next couple of chapters where they're going to grumble against the Lord for meat. They're going to grumble. Miriam and Aaron are going to have have like a little contentious thing grumbling against Moses. And then after that, the spies are going to go into the land and come back and say, we can't do this. And they're going to sort of almost blaspheme against God and God's provision in such a way that they're not going to be able to enter into the land. So we have this now introduction of a series of complaints, where there's going to be real consequences for not obeying. And Jesus seems to hold this up. Matthew chapter 25, right? Depart from me. I never knew you because when I was hungry, you didn't give me food. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me in. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me and it's sick, right? There's and depart from me. Like that that sounds bad. I don't think I want to do that depart thing. And even if we get to the place, well, that's the Old Testament, not the New Testament, well, First Corinthians ten is going to talk specifically about this exact Moment, and some of you guys have Bibles on the end of your row, and if you don't have a Bible, um, you can grab one or you can look it up. But if we look at First Corinthians chapter ten together, and we try to contend with what does it mean to have a God that's holy and amazing and loving, it's going to be in your New Testament First Corinthians chapter ten. If you have a blue Bible, it's on page, page seven nine eight. Paul starts. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. And that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. And they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. And their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And then it continues on. It seems to me that at least in part, what these passages are telling us is that, yes, God loves us, and God is long-suffering, and God is a God of rescue, and God reaches and grabs his people out and betrothes himself to them, and there is an expectation that we will behave differently. If you continue on in that passage of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. One day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did. They were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did. They were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples. They written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. And then this verse that gets thrown out and quoted to us all the time. No temptation has overtaken you that except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. Now that verse is always used, right, for, hey, don't worry. I know life's really hard right now. But don't worry. The Bible promises God won't give you so much that you can't bear it. And you're like, "Uh, I have a note for God. I cannot bear it, right? I hit that moment. I'm pushed through. I don't like this verse anymore. I don't think we've had a conversation as to what I can bear. And so we throw that out and then you feel guilty, right? Because you're like, well, I guess God, you know, all this, you know, he's tempted me or there's this temptation or it's a hard time. I think instead, if we take that verse and we set it back into this story in Numbers, that we're part of a community and that God has a mission for God's people to be set out into that community and that as God is sending us out into that community, there will be hard times, but that God has provided us a way to make it through those hard times. And I think in part, one of the ways that we make it through that is by remembering who we are and God's commands and what we've been called to. I don't think this is a specific verse for individuals. I think it's for the community of God. Hey, Corinthians, hey, church, hey, people who are following Jesus. God's been bringing people through wilderness for a very long time. And he's been providing for them. And these things serve to you as warnings so that you would remember too how God was faithful to your ancestors. So when things are difficult, don't grumble against him, but keep moving. The other thing that strikes me about this entire passage in numbers and these kinds of stories is that when I think about my own relationship with Jesus, I like that intimate love of the father connection. I remember years ago um, deciding that whenever I would have an office set up, I'd get a clock with a really loud tick. I don't know if that makes sense. Like I had big face cloth, but because I wanted to, be able to remember whenever I was pastorally counseling anybody or studying that that I wanted to try to imagine myself leaning up against the the chest of Christ and being able to hear the heartbeat. I like those images. Those are the ones I gravitate to. I love the love of God stuff. I want to just do the whole Sinai thing, which is the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, slow to anger, his covenant of love about abounding to a thousand generations of which we I like that. I don't know what to do when I get to this fire stuff and this wrath of God stuff, but here's where I'm trying to sort of sort it out. I think in my own life that I seek the spectacular, but not the holy. And I think I want a housebroken God that I can control. I think in my own life, when I think about the cloud, I go, yeah, okay. Cloud sounds good, right? Shade, moisture, cool, uh, glory, powerful, like all of that. Love, all of those kinds of things. But when I think of the fire part, it feels like, yeah, it can burn, right? That refiner's fire. And so what I want to do, is I want to lay newspaper down on the floor and say, okay, God, you can stay right here. I'm going to housebreak you. I want to try to control this manifestation of the divine revelation in my life. And I'm going to come and pray to you. And I want the experience with this thin place. I want the experience with the cloud, but I don't want you to do any of that fire stuff. That sounds scary. And I don't want you to tell me how to live. So I'm just going to I'm just going to ask for the spectacular, but not the holy. I just want the experience with you that feels good. It reminds me of this passage in Jeremiah chapter 7. Do you guys remember this? God's mad. It's not the first or last time. This is going to be happening quite a bit, right? And he says that there are people who are going to the house of God in the temple in Jerusalem. And they're standing there saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They just stand there in the midst of all that. And God says, but if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with either trust each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, all of that Torah stuff God told them, don't shed innocent blood in the place. If you do not follow other guards to your own harm, then I'll let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. You're standing in a place that you think is spectacular, but you're unwilling to embrace the holy. They're standing there and saying, look, here's God's house. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. you see all the gold and all the imagery and how incredible it is? Of course, we're going to be fine. We're standing in this very house. And God continues. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say, we are safe safe to do these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And then God continues on. He's like, go ahead, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I didn't just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed their stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts and they went backward, not forward. I think I do this. I think I stand in places and I say, hey, it's all going to be fine. Like, look at this. But is my life changed? Am I going to also contend with the holy or am I just going to hang out? And, and you know, Bonhoeffer uses that term cheap grace, right? That my response instead to God is just going to be this. I just want to hang out with the love and the grace, but I want it to transform me. I don't want to be changed by it. And I just going to stand in this house and say, we're safe to do these things. And isn't it for all of us in this room, the things that we from the outside looking in are contending with most is that hypocrisy or we're in it and we are participating in it. I think when I think of stories like this, I think I want the freedom, but I don't want the calling, right? I want God to rescue me out of Egypt, but I don't want him to give me any responsibility to respond to that rescue. But Israel It's given freedom from Egypt and freedom for a purpose. They're given a calling. And if they go out marching with God's presence into this world and act any old way, they cannot fulfill the calling that God has given them. They cannot be the people that God is asking them to be. They're no longer a light to the nations. They're no longer a light for the world around when I think of these difficult places, I think that I seek rescue, but I don't always want justice. Because the rescue feels really good when I'm the one who gets to participate in being rescued, right? But how did that rescue feel to the Egyptians? What was? They only had the God wrath part, right? They were like, I think this God of Israel is a God of wrath. But the Israelites experienced this God of love. The rescue was there, right? And have we ever considered the possibility that we might be Egypt? That there might be something that we are doing in our own life or in our institutions that say that we are the persons who are the oppressors. Maybe we're the ones that God does need to come and have a serious conversation with about how we live or what we're doing, or God's rule and reign in our own lives. Maybe there's things we're participating in, in this world, and we've talked a lot about human trafficking, we've talked a lot about fair trade, are there things that we have done here where we're the oppressors? We never read ourselves as the oppressor in the story. We're always the one being rescued, right? Right? but maybe there's something that we need to contend with. We like the rescue, but we don't like that justice thing. But those two things go hand in hand. And that's what a good father does. That's what a good parent does, right? If I see two kids on the playground and one's beating the other up, I'm going to go intercede and I'm going to stop, and that's going to feel like rescue to the one who's been beaten, and it's going to feel like the one that's been doing the beating is getting in trouble. And I think we have to be willing to read ourselves into both parts of that story. And if we're all honest, there's some of us maybe who've experienced such a rescue from God that we can actually point to our depraved selves and said, I was in the ditch, I was in the gutter before God reached me, grabbed me, pulled me out, and I am living differently now as a result of that. But some of us, maybe me mostly, have sat and gotten so comfortable with the love of God in my life and that grace and that rescue that I've forgotten that a transformation is also required. I seek intimacy, but with minimal sacrifice, right? Sometimes we're trying to do, what's the least amount I need to do in order to be in his will? We're always trying to find a way out rather than a way in. But our Bible calls us, our New Testament calls us to be a living sacrifice. Uh, This is a replica of an Israelite altar at Be'er Sheva, which where it wasn't supposed to be there. There's only supposed to be one. So it gets torn down and repurposed and, and pastor Mark is grabbing hold of it. Um, and the, the thing is, you know, with living sacrifices, they tend to crawl down off the altar. Right? A, a, a sacrifice that's dead will stay there. But when God in, and Through Paul in Romans chapter 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I want to be that living sacrifice. I feel like when I read these stories of God's wrath in the Bible, again, I just so want to just only hang out with the love part. There are other people that just hang out with the wrath part and say, see what a ridiculous faith you have. This God is just angry and mean and grumpy all the time, right? But I hang out in that love part, and then I find that I'm not willing to contend at least with some holiness. That my relationship with Jesus does demand a transformed life. That my relationship with God does demand that I live differently that I put others above myself, that I follow after Jesus. And we're going to be talking more and more about this in this next six to nine months here at Spark. What does it mean truly to be a follower of Jesus? How do we live and lean into this world differently and distinctly? How do we become transformed by God's very commands so that we aren't finding ourselves all of a sudden dealing with vast consequences of stepping further and further away of God's holiness. But instead, we're able to be in that thin place where we experience that true intimacy and love with God. And then because of that, we are transformed with a desire to be obedient. Not because that's how we get any salvation. We're saved by grace. But because that's our response, our obedience, our lived shift, it's our response to being so deeply loved. I don't have any answers for what to deal with, like, how do you deal with the passages where God just throws fire down and a whole bunch of innocent people get killed. I don't have a lot of answers for that. I can tell you what I'm not comfortable with. I'm not comfortable by saying, like, um, God caused that, caused that hurricane. I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm just, some things just are happening. Maybe this was just a lightning storm, but they also understood it. But there's parts of our Bible that just deal with the fact that God does get angry. God is angry at injustice. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I like God. I like God because God gets angry at injustice. I like God because God is caring and listening to the orphan and the widow and the call and the oppressed. Because in that, I also see God's great love. So, my prayer for us today is that we're just going to contend with that that we deal, like Spark does and everything, is that we're dealing with tension, that we deal with that push and pull, that it's the love of God and the holiness of God at that same moment, that God cares how we live. And my prayer is that if there are places in your life and mine, without the stereotypical, like, shame, guilt, you're going to burn in hell if you don't change, those kinds of things, like, set that aside, any of that stuff we might be carrying in, But just simply ask yourself the question of, is there more life to be found as you say yes to God's great love in your life? And as I do, too, is there also more life to be found in saying yes to God's commands to being saying yes to being faithful to God? It's a it's a tension. But I think that there's life in these commands and life in God's call. And I think that if we want to be God's people, we're going to have to live differently. And we have to deal pretty seriously with what that means in our world today. Marked overwhelmingly by the great deep love God has for each one of us and for this world. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus help. We don't always know what to do with this awesome, incredible power. We don't know what to do with with judgment and with um, sin. And we look to you because ultimately... In you and through you, we've seen how you want to meet this. This great sin in the world, our lack of holiness, our resistance to you and to your ways is met through your deep love and loving act on the cross. And so through your sacrifice and through your deep love and through your victory over sin and death, we lean into you and we ask Jesus that we would be deeply transformed through that and we would live differently as a result of it, marked by your love and a deep desire to be your people and to be sharing your presence and your reign and your rule in this world. We ask it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.